Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mercer's Energizing the Employee Experience podcast. Here at Mercer, we're the global consulting leader across talent, health, retirement, investments, and of course, employee benefits. For more details, please visit us at uk.mercer.com. In this new podcast series, we're going to be exploring the future of work, the latest trends, and of course, all the big topics in HR. I'm your host, Jack Curzon, Consultant Director here at Mercer, and each week I'm going to be joined by colleagues of, of mine from Mercer and wider um, who are going to share all their ideas, their experience, and their insights. On today's episode, we're going to be talking everything around financial well-being. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues, Paul Goodwin and Jeremy Milton. So if we can get a bit of an introduction as to both of your roles and background, that'd be fantastic. And then we can jump straight in. So Jeremy, if you could go first. Hi, Jack. Yeah, fine, thanks. So um, my name's Jeremy Milton. I'm the financial wellbeing leader at Mercer. Um, I've been part of, of the financial wellbeing team that we set up five or six years ago. And uh, my main focus is, is helping uh, clients and organizations uh, elevate and, and hopefully make uh, their financial wellbeing programs uh, really meaningful and impactful for their employees as, as we move forward. And uh, I'm Paul Goodwin. I'm the product and uh, proposition leader for Mercer's UK Wealth Business. And my role is essentially to build the products that help Jeremy to do do his role and help him procure some of the products that we need from the outside marketplace so we can bring not just the best of Mercer, but the best of our, best of the marketplace to our clients from a financial wellbeing perspective. Super. Great to have you both on board. Thanks so much for joining uh, the episode. Financial well-being is obviously quite a big word, and I know it means different things to different people. So the, the first thing I wanted to ask you essentially was, what are the latest trends and what are the conversations you're currently having with clients around financial well-being? Um, I'm happy to pick up on that, Jack, and I, I think it's, it's impossible to start answering that question without acknowledging uh, the C word and uh, COVID and the impact of the pandemic over the last uh, 15, 16 months, however long that, that's been now. Um, I, ironically, I think we'd seen clients uh, at different paces going through their, their kind of financial well-being development journey pre-COVID, um, almost bouncing from trying to take a strategic view, looking at implementing tactical solutions, and, and perhaps sometimes bouncing back and forth between the others or between both. Um, but I think what we were starting to see, particularly um, from global-led initiatives, was moving towards a more strategic role. Uh, COVID happened, and I think what we, we saw was amongst the, the, the absolutely right focus first on health and then on mental well-being, the, that a large number of organizations also took proactive action uh, to help their employees, particularly the, those clients perhaps or organizations that, that had to uh, let people go, put people on furlough, or where there was a more direct financial impact. Um, in fact, from, from, from our, our recent um, financial wellbeing index, we identified that, that 83% of organizations agreed that, that the whole in experiences and impacts of the pandemic um, have amplified the, the real need for meaningful financial wellbeing in the workplace. And just picking up on that, Jeremy, I think what we've also seen is a, a more of a prevalence for people to think about the role that digital solutions can play in in their financial well-being and trying to understand how their money fits together and how they can then use technology to help them plan for the future. But 
and 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 in doing that you know there've been a, a few developments such as the open banking regulations and open finance which has followed open banking that's that's meaning that the you know for for a small amount of effort people can now start to really understand more clearly what their financial position looks like and and importantly what are some of the decisions that they can take and the actions that they can take to move themselves forward towards their their goals whether that's to get them out of debt or whether to have a small amount of cash savings or whether to give them some freedom to make choices or be on track for the future these are these are kind of four key areas that uh, that we find people using technology to help them solve i i, I couldn't couldn't agree more with with paul on there and i think thinking back again about you know what clients have have done focused on you know accepting that was absolutely the right thing uh, over the last year or so um, and I'm not sure who I'm misquoting here, but education, education, education has been the key area we've seen clients either stepping up, you know, existing education program, whether that was retirement or whether that was around wider money management and, and broader, the broader financial well-being curriculum. And, and, and we kind of look at that almost like a spectrum from kind of baseline education, accepting all employees are at different stages of understanding uh, need um, through to particularly some of the digital tools that actually help people take action, which I think has, has been critical in, in terms of particularly times of financial stress for many individuals being able to do something practical rather than just learning. And it's that combination that I think we've seen employers get much smarter at focusing on and wanting to build that type of support support going forward because they had a very, very positive response from most employees where they, they kind of up the ante in that level of support and intervention. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's some big themes you've both covered there, which are not often thought about, I think, in terms of financial well-being. Certainly in the employee benefit space, there's a lot of kind of stereotypes alongside pensions and financial advice and someone coming into the office or, you know, a workplace and signing you up for something. You know, whereas that we've moved on from that dramatically and, and Paul, you know, you certainly mentioned the nod towards technology there. The, the first thing that I always think about when people talk about utilizing technology for something is what you get out the back of it, you know, in terms of data and how you can potentially use data, garbage in, garbage out kind of thing, right? But how how important is the role of technology and data in terms of financial well-being? It's a, it's a great question to ask, Jack, and I think it's vital, right? But I think it's vital if you think about it from a strategic perspective, if you're the employer. So rather than having different point solutions to solve different problems, start to think about what are the overall objectives that you have from a wide a financial wellbeing perspective and how can you use technology to help you drive data off the back of that that then will help you and will help your employees. And, and, and in helping you, how does it help you target communications, target effort, target spend? And for, you, for your employees, how does it help them improve their personal situation? And I think where you get connectivity of solutions and data, the data that's driven off the back of that, there's a richness that comes that's exponential in my view, that you know, single data points are fine, but they will, they will largely help you answer rear view mirror looking questions of what happened and why did it happen. If you're sat in an employer's shoes, it's well, that's fine, but there's nothing I can do about that. But what, what will happen or what could happen and how can I make it happen? And that's, that's where when you start overlaying different data sets, you can really start to draw some very, very interesting pictures. 
And it can be done in a way, you know, where it's all pseudonymized and aggregated. So no, no employee should worry that their data is being looked at in a particular way. This is aggregated pseudonymized data that can help employers start to make some really sensible decisions about where to spend their benefit money with their workforce. Yeah, I, I completely really love that concept of taking the, the bigger view of it. Um, Jeremy, have you got anything to add on that role of data? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Paul's absolutely right. And I, I guess if you, if you think of financial well-being for, for most organizations as, as a journey, I think it's using data as smartly as you can at each stage of that journey. And, and, and a conversation I, I've had with many organizations, there is no such thing as FW in a box that's right for every organization. Um, it is about an evolutionary journey and it all, always will be, not, not just because of the plethora of solutions, vendors out there in the market that can sometimes be a bit overwhelming, but it's also about understanding where your employees are. Uh, and we've had some experience of seeing organizations perhaps make assumptions around problem, where problems were in their workforce. And I think, again, perhaps partly the cultural change uh, and, and, and the discussion, more conversational tone between many employers and their workforce over the last 12 months, listening to employees up front is, is, I guess, more of an open door. But it's really, really important if you've got a limited budget or you want to take two or three steps and you're not nowhere to, to start, listening to employees, whether that's through pulse surveys, Employee preferences are, I think, are really important to help give your program or your program development the best possible chance of success. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, Jeremy. And I think a, a further further point on the use of data is that it just gives you your ability and the ability to to personalise the experience for the employee. You know, we're we're in an era of huge amounts of digital noise, whether that's email, whether it's you know any any form of social platform. And, and to be effective, any kind of financial wellbeing program that an employer puts in has to cut through that noise. And to cut through the noise, it's got to be relevant and personalised to the individual that it's targeting, right? That you want to get that communication to. And therefore, you know, that's where data we think can really come come into its own. Is is really starting to think about well, what's right for Jack might not be right for Jeremy, and therefore don't yeah. send the same communications to both. Make sure it's it's relevant for each of them. It closes the loop, doesn't it? And for me, it it provides an answer to that so what question. And I think there are dangers with lots of different benefit solutions which just provide a start to the journey or an end to the journey. Like I always think a classic one, you know, a health assessment delivered wrong is is an example of that where you just find out your current state of health and then you find it out again in a year or two years' time. You need to know what to do to move the needles in the areas that you need improvement for. But if I, if I put my consulting hat on, I also think, you know, we know that financial wellbeing is broad and the solution to financial wellbeing is not a pension scheme, you know, on its own. It's, it's got to be a multitude of solutions like you're mentioning, also delivered in a way which is consumer grade, but that starts to impact on people's habits and, and things like that. Jeremy, you said education, education, education. It doesn't need to be this complicated, over-regulated financial product. You know, it needs to be all things for all people, depending on where, what stage they're at, right? Because people's financial wellbeing needs will be massively different. Whether they are living wage workers or senior execs, they could be completely different financial needs in terms of disposable income with those two examples, not just 
assuming the more you earn, the better off you are. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Jack. And you mentioned stereotypes earlier on. And, you know, I think particularly, and this isn't just about stereotyping and making assumptions about people or programs. It's, it's, that, it's that context, I think, of understanding, to your point, people are at different levels. Now, what you can't do is build something overnight that, that, that deals with the needs of every single employee, whether that's education or signposting or facilitating solutions. It would be wonderful if we could, but you know, it's, it's not realistic. But it comes back to that principle about being able to support more broadly employees who are at, at, at differing levels of understanding and being blunt have differing ability to take action in certain ways. Someone who's really struggling with debt, for example, there's no point in doing 27 days of pension presentations and clinics and webinars. You're talking to a lost audience. So again, it's about recognizing and understanding and then creating and building a program that will increase over time the level of support, ideally where you get people to that almost self-help model. But that takes time, but, but every journey starts with the first step. And I think a lot of organizations sometimes are frightened of, of stepping out because this feels such a large journey to go on. Um, but we've also seen organizations perhaps uh, enable for three years when if they'd started two or three interventions, given the basis of a, a brand identity to their program, they would have made progress. And, and we know employees really appreciate this stuff when it, it's put out there to support them as, a, as part of a progressive journey, not just a kind of one-off activity. Sure. So we're also you know, living in a world where consumer-grade technology uh, is above everything else, right? You know, in our personal lives from a retail experience, we can click buttons very minimally and receive things very quickly and instant pay, instant delivery kind of thing. I don't think the employee benefits world is quite there yet when things are integrated through payroll, for instance. But what do employees expect when it comes to technology and processes, you know, even from just a simplistic consumer grade point of view? It's a a really good question, Jack, because I think what people expect is to have a a consumer grade experience with almost a military grade security approach to it, uh, particularly where personalized data is involved. Um, And understandably, they're sometimes disappointed when they look at workplace benefit solutions that can provide, yes, something that's kind of okay and it solves, you know, go in and, and, you know, solve one particular problem, but it might not solve problems in the round for an individual or it might not help them in the round. And so I think people are expecting things to connect more than they have ever done in the past. You know, anybody that is an Apple user will understand what connectivity looks like once you start getting various different devices together. Um, and it should be it should be that way and it should be simple to use. You know, this stuff shouldn't come with a huge manual on how to use it. You know, if you take the iPhone analogy, we've got one of the most c- complex pieces of technology ever built and it comes with no instruction manual. Right now, if you apply that thought process to the way that you build solutions for individuals, you can really help them because it just becomes intuitive to use. But it has to be intuitive, it has to be useful, but it has to be secure. And I think the other the other piece in terms of, I guess, thinking about the the, the kind of employee experience through this, it is again this this overarching framework of whatever it is you're doing, you know, a, a program, a solution, a service. And, and, you know, not all of these are going to be 
fully funded by the employer. You know, some of this is is about signposting where where to go. But you know, let me give you an example. If if you know you've identified as an organisation a debt issue within your population, and we know there's been a, a big growth over the last few years um, of kind of workplace loan consolidation. You know, more effective than particularly some of the uh, the, the bad end of, of the personal lending market. You know, and a lot of employers have, have kind of got on that journey. I think got over perhaps some of the moral issues around debt. Um, whilst it may be a personal program, we know that it, it dramatically impacts people's you know mental well-being concerns. So trying to help people move through that journey and get to a better place, you know, is is, is laudable. But again. If you've got something like a solution that is is, is really going to help that employee on the journey, allowing them to link through, for example, to the Flex program to actually be able to get to the place they can start that journey or take some action, I think is the other part of, of the employee journey that it's important not to underestimate. Yeah, and I, I think I'll go back to a point I was making earlier as well on this, which is you, you've got to personalise the experience. So, yes, it's got to be you know great consumer-grade experience, but it's got to be highly relevant to the individual. Right. And, you know, Amazon's great at that. You know, uh, you know, your next other people who bought this also bought, you know, so it's the people like me concept. Well, if, if you think about employees in segments of one rather than think about them as segments of people who are 25 to 35 or people who are 50 to 60 or people who earn between X and Y, you know, those those traditional segments that we've used and we use them a lot when we were doing pensions communications, for example, you know, people of the same age and the same earnings used to get the same communications, but they might be completely different individuals with completely different situations. All right, so we've, we've got to personalize that experience and good technology and good data gives you, gives you the ability to do it. And the more relevant you are, the more likely people are to come back and use, use that piece of technology again and again and again. Right? So mm -hmm. I think keep it highly relevant for the individuals you're targeting its use at. I totally agree. I think we've obviously been on a journey as an industry as well. Looking back previous decades, things like, you know, mental health solutions just weren't something that was offered or spoken about. Now, the majority of employers have something, if not several solutions. Financial well-being is obviously still very personal to people. You know, talking about your finances or your debts or your income I think we've still got a little bit of a hump to get over, but I can certainly see in the very near future, it's going to be as a hygiene factor as any other piece of, uh, you know, offering in the employee benefits package or, or whatever you want to call it. Especially when like you're talking about layering consumer grade technology with educational piece with, you know, regulated products, potentially formal advice. And actually that brings me on to my next question. Cause I wanted to, to get a gauge from you both as to, what was what the difference between an educational type service and a formal advisory service or product? Well, let me just kick off with a quick one then. Uh, uh, so Jeremy is, is, is closer to this day to day with, with the, the, the companies he's speaking to. Um, in my world of, of product build and product delivery, um, education is, is part of the grounding that we put in place for people to help them on the route to to understanding whether they need advice or not and if so where to go and get it um and again you know if you personalize the education experience to to somebody's individual situation that can really help accelerate any learning and help make learning more meaningful for them um, but there will always be a place for actual advice with a capital a if you like a sort of fully regulated advice um 
we have to be very careful in our industry to make sure we're being clear on what's the difference between guidance and advice so people understand when they're receiving regulated advice and when they're receiving guidance. But education and guidance en route to an advice solution, to me, is what makes sense. I, I don't think it's an either or, Jack. I think this is a and, and, right? You know, so it's, it's education and guidance and advice as a combined solution is the right thing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that, Paul. And, you know, there's, there's some practical issues around this. We, we all know that, that full advice, full regulated advice is, is not cheap. You know, whether an organization or an individual is, is paying for that. Um, I think there, there have been or there are starting to be, you know, some advancements in, in kind of robo advice models appearing in the market. And I think that that will continue to grow. Um, we know that the pensions minister is very focused around kind of democracy education and, and access to, to guidance um, and in some cases to advice. And I think it's, it's a really important uh, viewpoint if you think about those three books, core education, baseline curriculum, particularly for people who are, are nervous about money and really don't know where to start, you know, pushed information, but allowing people to kind of self-serve support, a guidance model. Uh, and often that's all people want. They want to be able to actually talk through their situation with, with an individual, um, you know, a professional. They understand the, the lines between guidance and advice, but often being able to just talk about their own situation outside of a, a kind of group presentation, a webinar, recorded information um, is, is, is a journey we know a lot of employees um, value. The movement to advice, you know, notwithstanding, you know, some of the challenges around prohibited cost, you know, what we're starting to see some organizations do, and, and back to Paul's point about personalized digital journeys, helping almost triage people through that. You know, if they can self-help through either a digital tool, access to information, ability to, to go to a clinic or a surgery, all of the type of deployment techniques that, that employers can, can bring to bear to support people on that journey, what you're doing is bringing people who really need advice, I guess, to that understanding, that has to be the next step, but more importantly, at the stage that they really need that. Yeah, and I, I think, I, I agree, Jeremy, but I think our challenge is to make it affordable for everyone. At the moment, it's affordable for the few unless an employer is willing to pay for advice for, for everybody. And, and, you know, my experience is that's, that's the minority and it's a small minority. Yeah, it, it's not even an AB20 on that on Paul. It's, uh, yeah, that, that journey has to, be, has to be solved through that. In, in the meantime, you know, there's a couple of things. We've seen some clients start looking at things like more flexible flex programs where people, for example, if they're trading down on holiday or they can, can actually buy and sell certain benefits, being able to use that almost towards an advice allowance. But I, I completely agree with you for, for the average member, for the average employee, you know, full regulated advice is, is still prohibitively out of, out of, out of range for them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's a really good point there around a kind of, not just the stereotypes, but lots of organizations tend to focus their financial wellbeing support on tapered annual allowance solutions or personal tax, um, you know, assessments uh, and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you're, you're highlighting a very particular end of the scale with specific needs, right? Whereas everyone, irrespective of how much they earn or what seniority they are, will have needs for savings, for debts, for investments, for education, for guidance, like we've all said. Um, and it's not being personal, doing just tapering any the allowance. There's nothing wrong with it, but it should be one string to a big bow kind of thing, in, in my view. Um, 
so we've spoken about quite a few things. We've we've also basically touched on the topic of engagement a lot, but we've not necessarily said engagement or, or things like that. And when I think about technology, when I think about delivering those messages personally, I obviously think about communications and how do we effectively communicate to big groups of employees about financial wellbeing? Should should we target them? Should we put them in a box based on earnings or something like that? Is that an effective way of doing it? No, no. In my view, it's not, Jack. I, I go back to this, the, the comment I've made a couple of times about it's got to be relevant to the individual and it's got to be personalised to the individual. Um, and when you think about engagement, I think you've just got to be clear on to what ends, right? What is it that you want them to do as a result of being engaged? Is it to... You know, is, is it to so, help solve their own problem, their problems? Is it to, you know, make them a, a more engaged employee? What is it that you want to achieve off the back of it? Once you're clear on what you want to achieve, then the method for doing so should become clearer, right? But but do take the time to think through, well, engagement's fine and it could move us from X to Y. We could, you know, we might have an engagement score. We might have any different way of measuring it. You know, it might be the number of people that have increased pension contributions. Well, you know, if if 30% is your goal of people increasing pension contributions, my question would be, so what are you doing about the 70%? Why, why are the 70% not? Right? And start to think about what, you know, there's different, there's different solutions for different individuals, but personalize the experience for the individuals and get them to engage that way. But think about why you want them to engage and what, what is, what's the end game? Yeah, I, th- I think the other other piece, Paul, is you know because what we're starting to talk, what we've been talking about, you know, in 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 this conversation, is about building blocks and and ultimately building that that right, you know, support network in its broadest sense, um, ensuring what you're doing is actually relevant to what your people need. Jack, you mentioned something earlier on about you know earnings level that debt is very clearly proven to to not not be the preserve of of the lower pay. And whilst we saw some very different behavioural patterns during the pandemic, perhaps um, professional people who were saving on commuting costs, things like that, uh, not being able to go out three times a a month for dinner, we saw savings levels rise. For lower earning people, we did generally see, you know, level levels of debt increase. Now, without sounding contradicting my own point, there is also this issue that for medium and higher earners, their lifestyle is also set around their earnings level. They wouldn't necessarily see some of the things other people might view as luxuries as, as luxury. Um, and, and for them, those challenges are still managing, and, and particularly in, in dual-income households, perhaps, where one household left, left, lost their income you know, or had their income reduced, those strains actually came, came home to roost. So you know, kind of coming back to Paul's point, uh, around you know what's the aim and what's the purpose it can sometimes almost feel overwhelming there are so many things we could help people with you know how do we get there what are what are the areas that we want to focus on first and i think part of this comes back to using data you've already got um understanding you know perhaps some employee listening to, to gauge that and understand you're not going to be able to solve every problem at once so come back to employee engagement jack I think the main point is focusing on perhaps the bigger needs or the biggest needs in your workforce to try and make more specific tactical interventions or or new programs to support people with particular problems rather than particular types of people. 
Yeah, just one final point on on this for me is don't assume that none of this doesn't apply to your workforce, right? I think I've got a, a data point from an article that I've kept because I just found it staggering, which was between September 2019 and August 2020, globally, this is 4.3 billion financial apps were downloaded from app stores. Right, so people do care about money and they are they are willing to, to take some action to think about their financial futures and they are willing to use technology to help them to do that. So you know, I, I wouldn't lose sight of that, that sort of staggering data point for me of 4.3 billion apps. So one thing I think about when we're talking about all these different solutions and approaches companies could take is it does feel somewhat overwhelming to go from potentially a pension scheme to 10 different other things what's the what's the best bit of advice of where to start that journey in beginning to offering a proper financial wellbeing solutions to your employees yeah it's a great great question jack and i, I think that you kind of touched on this earlier on that, that perhaps financial well-being can't can't be seen as, as the poor relation of the well-being family uh, anymore and i i think again experiences of the last 12 months to bring me back to kind of one of my early points is, is that I think, you know, the, the leadership teams are now much more comfortable starting to talk about broader well-being, mental and, and physical particularly. And I think there's a recognition that, that the pandemic has highlighted that, that, that financial has to be part of that, that central program or has to be more than it currently has been in many organizations. Uh, again, recent statistic from some, some research we did, 53% of companies don't currently have a financial wellbeing program, but of the, the universe, 60% of organizations are looking to now either start or improve that over the coming 12 months. But I think there's probably three things uh, employers can focus on. You know, it's that question, what do we do? What will be the most effective? Uh, what would have the most impact? Kind of where do we start? I think the first point we've touched on is understand, you know, where you are now, what you've delivered, developed already, and really what yours and your people's goals are, and objectives are. You know, if you've got limited resource, you want to do stuff that's going to make a difference, accepting Rome is never going to have been built in a day and a financial wellbeing program won't be. I think the second point is listen to the workforce or use data sources you've got to try and inform those critical decisions about there's a list of you'll come up with a list of a hundred things you could do but if you've got to find the top five or top ten use everything you know or don't be afraid to ask to make sure everything you do should have that impact we've talked about and, and help people move forward which is ultimately what this is all about i think my last piece of advice from last five or six years uh, is keep it manageable yeah so work out what those options are focus on those key solutions see them as part of the journey Anything you do in the next 12 months, make it supportive of that journey. Um, and, and like many journeys, as I said earlier on, starts with the first step. Don't get caught in planning blight. Don't get caught in navel gazing and diving into the detail. Set your roadmap and start taking those steps. Brilliant. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, that kind of brings us to time, actually. And I knew having both of you on to talk about financial well-being. Uh, would be no mean feat and we would we could carry on for for hours and it, it's been fantastic the the conversation has been really really useful so thanks both jeremy and paul for the insight it's been a great episode and for our listeners i hope you've enjoyed uh, dialing in and, and hearing this topic 
please make sure you subscribe. Please make sure you download our other episodes. If anyone's got any questions specifically about financial wellbeing, I'm sure both Paul and Jeremy would be happy to field them. We'll put contact details you know, available in the notes. If you've got any other general questions, then please get in touch with us. You can do that via email at mercer.uk at mercer.com or you can visit our website for more resources and info, which is uk.mercer.com. So thanks again to Jeremy and Paul, and we'll catch you on another episode. <laughs>